and welcome back everybody how is your quarantine going uh this is your host richard i am here just uh practicing my social distancing and doing my part to make sure that i am not uh, being a danger and a nuisance to society like those spring breakers in florida and i'm also referring to you um, hoarders Those of you that are out there panic shopping, you need to calm your asses down. Calm down. Share the resources with others and especially our our elderly people. What the hell are you going to do with all that toilet paper? Huh? What you going to do? Some of you are crazy. Anyway, let's get started with the show. This is episode 11 of the Tokyo Kamea podcast. It's time for a re- re- recap. In the last episode, the two camps continue their battle, but it seems like this war that Finao Urukalala thought would end quickly has turned into a war of attrition. Who is going to last longer? We see defections on both sides, each defection bringing intel that can benefit the side they defected to. Ulkalala receives information that there's a large Ufi plantation that they should raid. Unbeknownst to him, a defector from his camp revealed this plan to the Vava'u chiefs, and this was an opportunity for them to capture the Neafu fort, and Liu Fao, the chief left in charge with a small group of men, will willingly give it up. However, before Ulkalala and his men rolled out, another defector shows up and reveals the plans of the Vava'u chief. So Ulkalala has Liu Fao detained and confined, and he punks the Vava'u chiefs by getting to the Ufi plantation first, and waits to ambush them, which they did successfully and ended up killing 60 of the Vava'u warriors. Meanwhile, the second group of Vava'u warriors arrive at the Neyafu fort and find it abandoned. They quickly retreat, thinking it's a setup. Ulkalala and his men take the dead warriors back to the Neyafu fortress, and they consecrate their bodies to different Tongan gods. Liu Fao swears fealty to Ulkalala and he is released. However, Ulkalala's priest suggests that Liu Fao is innocent and that there's another traitor in the camp. Scouts report that they have seen Mapaha Ano send men to Fatungakoa, and he is called before Ulkalala and is stripped of his title and all privileges, and basically becomes an outcast. Meanwhile, a Vava'u warrior by the name of Moteita is terrorizing the Neafu fort by launching night raids and picking off Ulukalala's men, causing Ulukalala to keep his men inside the fort and to be extra vigilant at night. However, they are running out of provisions, and so Mariner and a few men go on a food excursion outside the fort and they run into four men who were taking food out of a ma pit. They capture the men and they behead them while they are still alive and return with their heads to the fort. On the Vava'u side, a priest by the name of Dupopuku, who is a relative of Ulkalala, begins to push for policies that some of the Vava'u chiefs felt benefited Ulkalala. So they suggest that he is useless to them and they should either kill him or confine him. The other chiefs ask for time to consider the options 
And meanwhile, Tupopuku makes his escape and takes refuge with Ulukalala at the Neafu Fort. And he basically reveals all the plans that the Vava'u people have to attack the fort in Neafu. Fina Ulukalala then orders the immediate strengthening and refortification of the fortress. And then they wait in anticipation for the Vava'u warriors to attack. And while they're waiting, Fina Ulukalala decides, okay, maybe I'll make my base here in Vava'u. Um, and for two reasons, Vava'u is big, Vava'u has a lot of resources and a lot of food. And personally, I think because Fina Ulukalala is from Vava'u but didn't have, didn't win the loyalty and the love of the Vava'u people the same way that they loved uh, Tupou Niwa. I think that was something he was very jealous of. And he figured he needs to stay in Vava'u so that he can keep his thumb on the Vava'u people. Mariner notes that at this time of year, it was a time of scarcity. So there wasn't a lot of fruits or vegetables in season. And to make things worse, they were running out of provisions at the Neafu camp. Fina Ulkalala dispatches canoes to Ha'apai for a fresh supply, enough to carry them over to the next harvest at least. Ekalia was sent with orders to return with Ufi and Ma with enough men to sail the Kalia and another crew to sail back a second Kalia from Ha'apai. Several women and children were included in this crew. On the morning they set sail, they sailed to Taunga, an island on the southernmost part of Ava'u, and they remained there for the night with the intention of setting out to Ha'apai the next morning. However, bad weather kept them at Taunga for several days. They kept a vigilant lookout for the Vava'u warriors for the first couple of days, and nothing happened, so they relaxed for a little, they slept on the shore by large fires, and the large fire drew the attention of the Vava'u warriors. And on the fifth night, when they fell asleep, their camp was attacked by 50 warriors, led by the warrior chief known as Makapapa. Makapapa and his men arrived on the opposite side of Taunga at night, and attacked the camp and killed 28 of them. The remainder escaped by getting on their canoe and pushing out to deep water. And some tried swimming away, but they were speared and killed. And here we have another case, another defection. This time, it was one of the men from the Vava'u fort came and told Ulukalala of Makapapa's plans. And so Ulukalala, while this was happening, and unbeknownst to Makapapa, had already sent some uh, large canoes with warriors, and they arrived shortly at Taunga. They were able to capture 10 of Makapapa's canoes. Makapapa and his warriors were trapped and couldn't escape by sea because they were surrounded by Ulukalala's men. So they decided to climb up steep rocks and some fell and they were killed and the rest got away. Two weeks have passed and those two weeks were very uneventful. Aside from some skirmishes and the canoes that he sent to Hapai haven't returned and they were running out of food. Ulkalala, getting desperate, decided they would go back to the Ufi field where they fought in the last episode and procure some Ufi. He took 80 of his finest warriors and gave them orders to conceal themselves during the night in a thicket close to Fatungakoa. Ulkalala, in the meanwhile, took a part of 600 towards Feletoa and he found a spot to scout the enemy while 100 of his men dug up the Ufi. He sent Halaapi Api, an adopted son of Tuponiwa, to the fortress to lure out the Vava'u warriors towards an ambush. The Vava'u warriors didn't take the bait because, unbeknownst to Ulukalala, there weren't very many of the men in the fort at the time, 
because they were all busy on the other side of the fort dismantling their kalia to make smaller canoes. As soon as the Vava'u men saw Hala Api Api, they sent someone to summon the rest of the warriors, and they arrived at the fort enraged when they saw their Ufi plantation had been raided. And they were so enraged that they gave chase and they passed the first ambush where Finau and his men lay concealed. And they immediately attacked from behind, and a second ambush attacked from the front, and they fought for 15 minutes. The Vava'u warriors were overwhelmed and began to retreat to the fortress, and they took some time to recover, and then they fought again for another 45 minutes. In the first engagement, 40 men from the Vava'u side died, and Ulukalala only lost two. In the second attack, Vava'u lost one, and Ulukalala lost none, though several died later from their wounds. Mariner noted that this was a battle of arrows and spears instead of clubs because of the terrain and the height advantage of the Vava'u side and because it was raining and they couldn't use muskets. In the second battle, Mariner was shot in the foot with an arrow and he says that it passed through the broadest part of his foot and it disabled him for several months. Ulkalala and the Ha'apai army returned to Neyafu and Ulkalala gave the orders that no one is to venture out for a while because the enemy is highly agitated and they are out for blood. So Ulkalala and his men were successful in getting some of that ufi from the Vava'u plantation and now they just need protein to eat with that delicious ufi. A warrior by the name of Havili requested for Finau to permit him and a group of men to raid a hog farm he scouted on the northwestern part of the island. Havili had a reputation for undertaking secret expeditions by night and for killing more men in his life than any other warrior. Urukalala agreed to it, so he went with 40 men and proceeded towards the hog farm. However, the Vava'u side had anticipated this would happen especially after Ulukalala and his men raided the Ufi plantation. So they had more warriors on guard than usual at the hog farm. They saw Havili's canoe approaching, so they hid. And once they landed, they were ambushed and attacked from the rear, with such effect that 15 of Havili's men were quickly dispatched, and Havili was able to kill only one of theirs. Havili and the remaining men were able to make it back to their canoes. The Vava warriors taunted them, what? You wanted some pork, did you? How did you like your treat? But stay, we have some fine pigs for you, already killed. Alluding to the dead bodies. Why don't you come and take them? Havili returns to his camp unsuccessful. A few days later, one of Finau's wives ran away to Feretoa, and shortly after she was joined by one of the son's wives. Finau made his way to Feretoa, accompanied by six of his men, to plead for their return, but he was unsuccessful. He returned feeling much dejected and sent word to Toeumu, the chiefess of Ava'u, stating for the return of his wife and that this was a war between men and not women. However, the women had no desire to return because their family was at Feletoa and they were also severely mistreated by Finau's favorite wife. Her name was Mo'ungatupo. Mariner, now walking around with the help of a makeshift crutch, was picking fruits one day and he noticed a rustling noise and movement from a nearby bush. He went to investigate and found one of Finau's wives. He says, I heard a rustling noise in the bushes below and, directing my attention to the spot, was surprised to see one of Finau's wives. 
Prompted by curiosity, I came quickly down, and seizing her by the arm, I inquired what caused her to stray so far from the fortress, and to expose her person and her life to the insults and the cruelty of the enemy. She replied that she had only come out for a walk and was going to return shortly. To this account I objected that it was too far and too dangerous a walk for her to take alone, with the risk of meeting Moteita and his followers, who often concealed themselves in those woods and declared my suspicion that she intended to run away. She immediately fell on her knees, clasped her hands, and begged and entreated most earnestly that I would not prevent her flight from the dominion of tyranny to the bosom of her relations, and appealed most pathetically to my own feelings and affections towards my mother, or whatever relatives I might have in my own country, and represented how hard and cruelly severe it would be for anyone to prevent me from flying to them, if it were otherwise in my power. Being moved by the earnestness of her manner, and the unfortunate circumstances of her situation, I raised her up and promised not to interfere in her escape nor to divulge the matter to anyone, and gave her full liberty to proceed whichever way she thought proper. Yay, good job, Mariner! In Feletoa, there was a location where Vava'u women would gather shellfish at low tide. Occasionally, the Vava'u warriors would come out pretending to be Ulukalala's men and scare them. Mariner said that Ulukalala was aware of this and long entertained the idea of capturing the women, especially now that his wife was in their protection and he was more motivated than ever to retaliate for Toreumu's stubbornness. One day, several of Ulukalala's men set out at night and waited for the women to come down from the fort and gather their shellfish. On a signal, they came out and ambushed the women, and the women thought it was the Vava'u men playing games, until one of them was struck down with a club. They ran as fast as they could, and the men ran after them in full pursuit. There were 30 of them, and 5 of the women were killed, 13 were taken prisoner. The rest made it to safety. The wife of Finau's son was nearly retaken, but she was like, oh hell no, and she ran like Usain Bolt in knee-deep water while being pursued by one of Ulukalala's men. He got close enough to strike her down with his club, but the weight of his club was slowing him down. And meanwhile, to quicken her pace, she removed her ngatu clothing and took off, no longer weighed down by its wet heaviness. The 13 prisoners were taken to Neafu, though Ulkalala gave them orders to kill them on the spot, and he seemed annoyed that they were all brought back alive. The women were obliged to submit to the will of the captors, and this was not considered brutal. The captors saved their lives partly from the motives of humanity and partly from profit. Okay, I'm going to pause right here, and I'm actually going to read to you what Mariner wrote, because to me, it sounds like they were raped. The women were obliged, however, by the way, to submit to the will of their captors, for this is always considered a thing of course, and not at all an act of brutality. These transactions are generally conducted in neighboring woods, and by no means in an open public or outrageous way. In short, notions of delicacy and respect to the female sex have a much higher influence in the Tongan Islands that what would be commonly understood from the accounts of some travelers. Among the lower orders, of course, there are abuses everywhere, but these do not constitute the legal customs of a country. Okay, that to me sounds like rape. What do you all think? Can you imagine if your only choice was either being raped or being killed? You know, that really sucks. The captors saved their lives partly from the motives of humanity and partly from profit, 
they could make ngatu and other things, etc. However, shortly after this, there arose many disputes from the families of the captors, arguing that they should have a claim to these women according to Tongan custom, which states that all persons shall be in the service of their superior relations. Meanwhile, the captors insisted on the right of conquest, and so they go back and forth with this dispute, and this is what Ulukalala anticipated was going to happen if they were kept alive and brought back to the camp, and which is why he was annoyed when they were brought back alive. He proposed that they sever the women in half, give one half to the relatives and the other half to the captors. But they eventually came to an amicable solution, which kept the women alive, with some given back to their families while others remained with their captors. In the last episode, I mentioned the warrior by the name of Havili. He was the one that went on an excursion to get some hogs from the hog farm that was uh, owned by the Vava'u people. In this part of the story, we are introduced to his brother, Palavale. And Palavale went out one day as part of a foraging party with six men in two small canoes. They arrived at a place called Ngakau, a consecrated enclosure. If you've been listening to the podcast, this should be familiar to you by now. Uh, consecrated spaces are areas where you cannot commit murder. And these are usually cemeteries that belong to um, different clans where important people are buried. Um, and so once you are in that space and you are in a situation where somebody's trying to harm you, they cannot harm you in that space because it is tapu. And to do so, the consequences are very high and could also include uh, you forfeiting your life. So Palavale and his six men, they go out on their um, excursion looking for food, and they encounter four Vava'u warriors nearby. The Vava'u warriors reminded them that they are on consecrated land. However, Palavale tried to cut them off and get between them and the fencing. One of the Vava'u men scrambled around Palavale and got one foot over the fencing, but Palavale struck him over the head and killed him. He fled to his canoe with his other men and headed back to the Neafu fortress and reported to Ulukalala what just happened. Ulukalala immediately consulted with his priest of his own tutelary god to invoke the necessary punishment for the tapu that was violated, this act of sacrilege. The priest said that a child should be strangled to appease the anger of the gods. So the chiefs then met and decided it should be the child of Tupoltoa by one of his female attendants. Mariner writes, On such occasions, the child of the male chief is always chosen as being worthier than others, and a child by an inferior female attendant, because it is not a chief, only those children being chiefs whose mothers are chiefs. Dupotoa was present and gave his consent that his child, about two years old, should be immolated to appease the anger of the gods and turn aside their vengeance for the sacrilege crime committed. The child was accordingly sought for, but its mother, thinking her child might be demanded, had concealed it. At length, being found by one of the men who were in search of it, he took it up by his arms, smiling with delight at being taken notice of. Its poor mother wanted to follow, but was held back by those about her. On hearing its mother's voice, it began to cry, but when it arrived at the fatal place of its execution, it was pleased and delighted with a band of ngatu that was put around its neck 
and looking up in the face of the man who was about to destroy it, displayed in its beautiful countenance a smile of ineffable pleasure. Such a sight inspired pity in the breast of everyone. But veneration and fear of the gods was a sentiment superior to every other. Its destroyer could not help exclaiming as he put on the fatal bandage, Oya wes y vale vale. Two men then tightened the cord by pulling at each end, and the guiltless and unsuspecting victim was soon relieved of its painful struggles. The body was then placed upon a sort of hand barrow, supported upon the shoulders of four men, and carried in a procession of priests, chiefs, and matapule clothed in mats with wreaths of green leaves around their necks. In this manner it was conveyed to various houses consecrated to different gods, before each of which it was placed on the ground, all the company sitting behind it except one priest who sat beside it and prayed aloud to the god that he would be pleased to accept of this sacrifice as an atonement for the heinous sacrilege committed and that punishment might accordingly be withheld from the people. After this was done before all the consecrated houses in the fortress, the body was given up to its relations to be buried in the usual manner. Five days later, Balavale was killed in a skirmish with the enemy. He went out again on a foraging excursion with about 30 or 40 men, not professed warriors, but men of whose courage and honor no reliance could be placed. They met with a smaller body of the enemy, but who were all staunch fighting men. In a very short time, Balavale's men turned about to run away. He vainly endeavored to rally them, and facing the enemy again to set the example, he received several wounds and fell. After this moment, his men faced about, and seeing the perilous situation of their chief, became animated with courage and drove the enemy a few paces back, while three of his men grabbed his body and took him back to the garrison. When they arrived, they proceeded to take out the four spears which had pierced him, but he desired them to desist from so useless a task, as he was certain the gods had decreed his death as a punishment for his offense. This too was the general opinion of the people, and was the subject of their conversation for a long time afterwards, contributing to the spread of considerable gloom throughout the garrison. Balavale died about half an hour later, after he was brought home. Remember the canoe that was sent to Ha'apai for provisions? It finally arrived. And at this time, Finau just was beginning to grow tired of the war. It was a kind of conflict that was not suited to his genius. He was used to hard-fought engagements, hand-to-hand combat, and a speedy conquest. But the Vava'u people had a lot of patience. They were still hiding in their fort, and they were not coming out of their stronghold because they knew that it was strong enough to hold him back. And so this was driving Finau Urukawa nuts. The walls of clay was doing what it was supposed to do, and so it neutralized the power of the carronades. Mariner mentions that he could have easily devised a method to burn down the fortress, but he also considered Toyumu's cause quite as just as that of Finau. He says, Although the latter was my friend and benefactor, yet he had more than half assisted in the assassination of a man of admirable character, Duponiwa, who was also my friend. 
Besides, I did not choose to be the means of dealing out destruction upon a number of innocent women and children. Mariner also notes, Finau heartily wished for peace, but he did not choose that his wish should be known, lest it should be attributed to fear or any other un unworthy motive. In short, he wanted to bring about a peace without being thought to wish for peace, and the difficulty was to accomplish this. He was, however, by no means deficient in policy, as he soon thought of a method. From time to time, he held secret conferences with the priests, either about religious subjects or political matters, as connected with the will of the gods. He spoke of his determination to remain at Mabau and prosecute the war till his enemies were destroyed. Then on a sudden, as if his heart for the moment relented, he painted in the most striking colors of the evils of war and how sorry he was that the necessity of the case obliged him to punish his rebellious subjects with so dire an evil. He then represented in the most lively colors the blessings of peace, and on this side of the prospect touched his hearers, so with the beauty of the description that they entreated him to endeavor to make a peace. He then pretended to be inexorable, but always threw in something in favor of the Vava'u people, so that the priests at length thought that there was no question at all about the propriety and honor of making a peace, and that it was their duty to persuade him to do it. For when they were inspired, they had the same sentiment, and of course they considered it to be the sentiment of the gods, and represented it to him as such, when he, pretending to submit only because it was a divine will, left the matter entirely to them to negotiate, and if they succeeded, it would afford him, he said, at least one great gratification, namely the opportunity of again renewing his friendship with his aunt Umu, and paying her the respects which her superior relationship required. The day after the last conference, the priests accordingly dressed themselves in their taovala with wreaths of green leaves round their neck as tokens of humility, not towards the enemy, but the gods, as fulfilling a commission sacred in its nature. And thus equipped, they set their way to Feretoa. In the meantime, Finau gave orders that none of his men, if they met with a party of the enemy, should commit any act of hostility, but should endeavor on all occasions to avoid them by as speedy as retreat as possible, for as the gods have admonished him to endeavor to make a peace, and the priests were actually fulfilling that endeavor, any act of hostility might defeat their purpose. The priests went four or five times to hold conferences with the chiefs of Feletoa, before they could bring about a reconciliation. For although the old men seemed willing enough to listen to the terms of accommodation, influenced perhaps by their prejudice in favor of Finau as their lawful king, yet the young and spirited warriors, who saw clearly enough into the artful character of Finau, with much less of the above prejudice, constantly objected to make peace with a man on whose honor and integrity they thought it was impossible to rely with any degree of certainty, and who would again give room for a quarrel with the Vava'u people whenever it suited his purpose. This was their real thought, and perhaps a just one, though they did not express their sentiments with such a latitude to the priests. They merely objected their apprehensions, that in the event of a peace, Finau would, at some fit opportunity, wreak his vengeance upon them personally for having fought against him. At length, however, they said that as their lives were not a matter of so much consequence as the peace and happiness of Toeumu and her people, 
they were willing to withdraw their objections that the affair might be speedily settled according to the wishes of the older chiefs. The priests now returned to Neafu with the warmest assurances from the chiefs of Feretoa that they would pay Finau an amicable visit the following day. Well, I think this is a good time to end this episode where we're at. And it looks like peace is in the horizon. So in the next couple of chapters in the book, we are actually going to find out what that entails. Can they fully trust Finau Ulukalala, knowing his character, knowing his shadiness, and knowing like, you know, all the treacherous things he's done in the past, especially um, his betrayal of Dupo Niwa. And so all of those things are going to come up in the next couple of episodes. And um, we're kind of almost getting to the end of the book. But don't worry, there's still a lot of good content coming up. And this story is not quite over yet. So again, thank you all for tuning in. I want to welcome all of the new listeners who just discovered the podcast. Please take the time, you know, during this uh, quarantining um, take the time to listen to all the other ones. Um, this is the 11th episode, and I have a couple of Q&A episodes in there as well. I'm going to do just a supplementary Q&A episode next, um, just to answer some of your questions that you have sent in. And I apologize again that I've ne neglected you for a while, but now we have time to do this. So um, I look forward to just chatting with all of you about it. And also, um, for those of you that live in the USA, uh, Census 2020 is upon us. And so I just want to uh, put that out there as well. Very important for us to complete our census forms and to ensure that our voices are heard, that we are represented. And shout out to all of you uh, Pacific Islander uh, content creators that are out there pushing the census to all of our people i see you all so good job thank you i hope you all have a blessed day please be safe uh practice social distancing let's uh, get this virus taken care of so that we can resume our normal lives Oh, <laughs> 
Otadunu ai solo tainari kuoholo ai sike ke no fo Paki moe tohi ahupani lolo o kapelu teni ilo ehe Poto koe ese nisi oe ofaloro to oku kasike tihe tapuke to o Lau manuhi na oheri kutapu na esi utakare wahapo Lau manuha esi sifaka waini aku mafu wahefa ilomo akau Kohono tu unga fakatalu talu ilome ilomo longo fo lau tau kapa Tu koe manusiu e halau afu